Welcome to the Harper's Podcast. I'm your host, Violet Luca. In the July issue, Rachel Yoder writes about Brachrai, a form of healing or witchcraft practiced by Mennonites and the Amish. This alluring subject is also deeply personal. In addition to dealing with chronic pain, Yoder grew up in a Mennonite community, and her father, who accompanies Yoder on this reporting trip across the bucolic splendor of the Midwest, grew up in an Amish community and speaks Pennsylvania Dutch. On their long car rides between healers, Yoder meditates on their shared yet vastly different rebellions. I spoke with Yoder about the unique tradition of Brachrai, the flattening of Amish and Mennonite communities in the media, and the odd parallels between coastal goop fans and rural Amish healers. So for people who aren't perhaps familiar with other um, witchcraft traditions, you know, whether it's burning sage, lighting candles uh, from other traditions, there's the Amish tradition of witchcraft or powwow. It goes under many different names, has kind of been kept close to the best. It hasn't really broken out over Tumblr. So could you explain this tradition and, you know, what what does it, you know, how is it passed down? What are its kind of tenets? So powwow or browkrai is actually a folk medicine tradition that arises out of the Pennsylvania Dutch culture. Um, Pennsylvania Dutch encompasses Amish, um, and Mennonite to a certain extent, extent, but then there are also people who come from German-speaking immigrants who are not Amish or Mennonite, who are Pennsylvania Dutch. Uh, so this folk medicine lineage uh, exists, you know, still in Pennsylvania among um, Amish, Mennonite, and just Pennsylvania Dutch folks. Folk. Um, and it's, you know, when you hear the term folk medicine, it's about what you would expect. Uh, back in the old days, you know, um, men who would travel around and uh, perform healings, maybe um, people who would come into your house when your baby was sick and do a ritual with a string and an egg or um, pass the baby through a circle of string and say a prayer. And there are contemporary practitioners who are still performing this sort of folk medicine today. And it's, it's not as connected to those sort of folk medicine spells we think about. Today, it's more... Um, sort of linked to body work, to prayer, to recitations of old prayers in Pennsylvania Dutch, to singing, being with another person in a room, being present with that person, hearing their concerns, talking about their ailments, and then performing a ritual um, was my experience of what powwow or brow cry has kind of become and what's happening with it today. And you grew up in a Mennonite community and you left when you were a very young adult. And much of this piece involves your reconnection with that community and with your heritage and feeling this gap between the generations. So, you know, most listeners will only understand these communities through what they've read 
and seen in movies, you know, like women talking dramatized the conflict between traumatized women in one of these communities. So what do movies like this get right about Mennonites? And is there anything they get just totally wrong? Well, I think what you can say generally about Amish and Mennonite communities is that there's a whole continuum and spectrum of communities ranging from ultra liberal to ultra conservative. And each community has its own culture, its own personality. So just because I was raised Mennonite, my father was raised Amish, we come from a very specific part of the country. My dad was raised in Hartville, Ohio, um, and his, his folks were from Holmes County. And that's a different kind of Amish and Mennonite than you would find in Iowa, where I live now. Um, so there are these subtleties. And I do think because of the nature of Hollywood, all of those you know, subtleties sort of get flattened and you have this sort of idea of the Amish or the Mennonite as this singular sort of people. Um, and usually the portrayals in film are fairly conservative um, and people are surprised when they see someone like me who um, I, I guess I still identify as Mennonite, but um, you know, I'm, I'm very liberal and don't wear plain clothes. And um, so, yeah, so there's a, there's a whole spectrum. Um, and I think, you know, Hollywood gets it right to a certain degree, but, but there's a lot, a lot more. Um, uh, the communities are much more varied than one might, might expect. Yeah, I mean, I I follow a guy on TikTok who's ex-Amish, and he helps he helps like rescue people from Amish communities or abusive mm. situations. And uh, mm -hmm. great, uh, he's very strange. <laughs> but um, <laughs> you know, you you do have like these. There are these amazing details in the piece about things that you are nostalgic for as someone who has left uh, this tradition this cluster of beliefs like peanut butter pie so what would you say films these films overlook about the life well I think it's hard for films to portray Amish and Mennonites as anything other than the other right or as anything other than the anomaly or this or, or the curiosity uh and so guess what what do they what do they kind of was the question what do they get right or what do they get wrong well what do they overlook like what, what is do they the... overlook yeah um I think I mean as is the case a lot of times when you're portraying a culture with which you're not familiar I think sometimes it can be hard to portray the complexity of Amish and Mennonite people and the and the contradictions um, of a of a single Mennonite or Amish person. Um, how, you know, you kind of want to flatten them and say, oh, there are these simple, holy, religious people, um, sort of one-dimensional. Uh, but of course, my experience is that 
is is one of you know Amish and Mennonites and all their complexity and 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 the trip that I took to Pennsylvania that I write about really underscored that you know meeting uh, an old Amish woman who was a practitioner of powwow and just seeing all the contradictions and complexities of of what she was doing and how she was living. Part of what drew you back to this. Um to your heritage it was your knowledge of a spell book which is called the long lost friend a collection of mysterious and invaluable arts and remedies which is just an incredible title but how did you find this book and is it just like on the internet could you pick it up at your local library how does what's the book <laughs> i think i actually heard about it from one of my friend's dads ron martin who sort of brought it up in jest and asked me if I knew about Amish witchcraft, quote unquote. And then, you know, when I saw the title, how can you resist? How can you possibly resist an actual book of spells that is from your heritage? So I had to, I had to seek it out. I I think I got it off of Amazon. which you shouldn't be able to, but um, it was a little bit hard to find. And, you know, when I got it, it absolutely delivered on what I was looking for, just these crazy spells and incantations, you know, um, spells for finding your lost horse or for a case of the dropsy, uh, you know, whatever that is. And it was just, it was, it was the sort of thing that 13 year old me would have really loved. And, you know, 44 year old me really loves. Um, And it, and it, I like it because it was sort of a surprising thing to come out of Pennsylvania Dutch culture. I had never really heard about it at all um, until midlife. And so I wondered why haven't I heard about this and what is it all about? And are, and are there people who are still involved with this culture? And while I did learn that the book um, was, was actually carried by people back in the day as sort of a, a protection and not necessarily something that people ever did spells from. It was more of this token that protected them. Um, and the actual lineage of brow cry was more uh, the thing that was taught between people rather than something that came out of a book. And do you feel like the the ailments treated in the book, you know, feel modern? They don't feel modern. I mean, for instance, you know, finding your horse or making your horse come back was one of them. And and when I spoke with Patrick Don Moyer at, at Kutztown University, who's the scholar that I mentioned in the piece, uh, he did tell me about a sort of modern day application of a spell like that, where he helped a friend find a lost cat. And he sort of modified the directions. Um, and I think, you know, you need to use a shovel or something that you use in the horse's stall. So instead of that, he used um, the kitty litter scooper <laughs> in his <laughs> application um, of the spell. And and the cat came back. The cat showed really? up. It worked. Uh, he, he tells an amazing story. It's not in the piece, but, but he was just, 
an absolute fount of wisdom um, and knowledge about all things powwow and brow cry. Before you like discovered this book and began this research trip, what was your relationship with modern medicine and the quote unquote medical establishment like? Well, before I went on this trip, a number of years earlier, I had developed a number of autoimmune diseases. And if you know anything about autoimmune diseases, it's that uh, modern medicine is very limited in their understanding and treatment of a body uh, where your immune system has gone haywire. So, you know, I have had been going to see an array of doctors for a number of years to varying effectiveness um, and was and was pretty frustrated, you know, that I couldn't get any answers about what was going on and couldn't couldn't get any treatments that treated the root cause of the problem rather than just the symptoms. So I was already feeling pretty frustrated um, by the medical establishment. And um, I think that this was going on this trip was sort of a way of trying to approach my own problems from a different direction. not overtly, but that that was sort of the the shadow story going into this was I mean, you know who knows maybe folk medicine has something to tell me about my own body and about my own autoimmune issues. Yeah, I mean it's um, there are always these weird gaps in uh, medical advancement, right? Or just things that are simply not there's a either a lack of research or really no desire to research. And a lot of them have to do with chronic pain. Absolutely. Yeah. And and I think chronic pain is so, can be so, especially pain itself can be so mysterious to modern medicine, right? And, and the source of pain and, and, and how pain can be structural, but it can also be psychosomatic. It can also be very tied to the psychological and, and, you know, where, what is causing the pain. Um, I also found it after I went on this trip, returning to my rheumatologist and the way she, you know, touched my joints and would feel my fingers and, and say, oh, this one is swollen and this one isn't. And it almost felt like, sort of felt like folk medicine to me, you know, how she's sort of touching my body and, um, and trying to figure out what's going on. So there was an interesting overlap there. I mean, do you feel, do you feel like there are perhaps in powwow or other, you know, non-FDA approved treatments, Mm -hmm. uh, mystical or regular, (laughs) um, (laughs) you know, have you ever been drawn to other practices like these? Or is this just sort of like your first rodeo? Oh, no, I've definitely dabbled. And, you know, my growing up, my mom and and still now she's she's very into her herb garden. She's very she was always very into giving foot rubs and Mm -hmm. and telling me which part of my foot corresponded to what part of, you know, what organ in my body um, and into sort of home remedies, herbal remedies, which which worked um, because, you know, herbs do actually have properties. Um, that can really help 
And so I, I definitely like that stuff and I, and I believe in it. I believe there's also a place for modern Western medicine, but I've definitely dabbled in, you know, Eastern medicine and sort of folk medicine. Um, just, I, I've just been really open, especially as I've come, you know, to have sort of more complicated stuff going on with my body. Um, I, I want to leave room for the, the sort of stuff that has abided throughout generations and centuries, because I think it's abided for a reason, because it has, for some reason, been effectual. Exactly. I mean, it's, you know, there's so much to do about natural cleaning products. You know, it's kind of is something actually green? Is it actually not green? But there are so many, even like, you know, uh, lavender has antibacterial properties. Mm -hmm. Lemon has antibacterial properties. And we somehow ended up using all of these cleaning products that just smell like lemon or smell like lavender, but aren't actually mm -hmm. based in lavender to, for the same purpose. It's like this weird continuation of how, you know, these ancient traditions of cleanliness right so there is again they endure these things endure whether or not we're conscious of them let's say right it's just so interesting because we are these sensitive parts of nature and because of our big brains and our consciousness we like to think that we sort of operate above nature or yeah. we operate outside of nature and of course, we're just part of this system. And so why would we think that that bringing toxins or bringing things into the system that aggravate our sensitivities, why would we think that that didn't matter? Um, <laughs> and I think we're, we're starting to become more attuned to that, that we're part of this epic natural system and it actually does matter how we pollute it and how we corrupt it in in literal and i think metaphorical ways there have been epigenetic studies done on plants and it's been shown that you know plants can reflect reflect trauma that which is insane you would never think that that is true but also i think just as people think of ourselves as above it and kind of separate from it, there has to be some recognition that we're mirroring each other. And, you know, not to sound like a grandpa, but it's maybe not the best idea to have these uh, little machines in our pockets that are constantly stimulating our ape brain. Um, oh, 100%. <laughs> and I, you know, I, I've been thinking about that because I think that brow cry and powwow is is sort of the antidote to the lives we lead of, of being incredibly disembodied all the time mm. and being alone, yes. alone and disembodied. And the beauty of brow cry, the thing that really settled into me after this trip was, and it was something that Patrick brought up when we were talking is that brow cry is a way of caring for each other it's a way mm. of being present with another person in a moment being present being two bodies together in a place 
and, and, and caring for each other and how that in and of itself is so incredibly valuable. And I completely agree that that that's what Braukrai is all about. And that is what we're getting farther and farther away from in mm-hmm. our, you know, modern lives as we just become floating consciousnesses, um, you know, in our own little hovels. Uh, there's something that feels incredibly grounding and healing about a tradition where two people come together, one person tells the other what, what their pain is, and the other person does a ritual to honor that pain, to see that pain. I, what could be more valuable? I don't know. Oh, no, I mean, what's, what's so incredible in the piece is that you talk about how that it's not just sort of, you know, like the Reiki healer who's kind of just sort of like making motions. There's coughing, there's burping, there's convulsing, there's ch- this chattering, there's this real like physicality to the healer that you may not get in other, like they're kind of expressing what the person in pain is feeling and it's very as you say it's like very um emotional it's very very visceral in kind of a way that is removing very far away from it also makes me think about art and performance art and yeah in a way it is a person performing someone else's pain uh in this very physical way is it is it is it a kind of dance is it a kind of performance art um maybe so and and that's beautiful too absolutely and um your performance partner for this piece was your dad (laughs) who uh speaks pennsylvania dutch um and he was your guide through these different communities uh as you pursued amish amish witchery um did you ever attempt to learn pennsylvania dutch as a kid or, or as an adult and are there any words you can remember that, you know, you are funny or you just like the sound of? Um, I think at one point I did ask my dad to teach me, but he never did. It was, it was something that was just kind of around when I was a kid. You know, my, mm-hmm. my aunts and uncles spoke it to each other and I could kind of pick up on words here and there. It, and it's also not a written language. It's really just right. a spoken language. Um, so, you know, I know a few words here and there. I know Pona is a rooster and Vigates and can kind of <laughs> pick up on things as people are talking. But unfortunately, I, I don't know it uh, and, and wish I did. Is the sound kind of like, does it take you back to your childhood or to, you know, in a nice way or in a way where it's like the adults are talking and I cannot understand what they're saying? Oh, no, I find it really comforting and almost like a song. It's a very sing-songy language. Um, and I, I love hearing it. So I guess I'm interested in how some of these practices seem to treat the mind and the body as inextricable from one another. You know, treating the mind treats the body, vice versa. Um, and you write at some point, There were the expected items on the counter and side tables, bamboo, a small fountain, smooth river rocks, finger symbols, tea lights. 
when in your what in your understanding is the history of some of those items because some of them feel in keeping with you know uh the Amish tradition you know or just northeast american history but others are kind of like imported <laughs> um you know so what about these rituals makes them feel specifically related with Amish history and values and what what made those items expected i guess well, those items specifically were in the office of the third practitioner I visited, who I referred to as the healer in the piece. And she was so fascinating and um, works in um, a setting that's more conventional. So she does conventional body work, massage and, and Reiki and so on. So she had in her office the sort of things you see when you go to your massage therapist. Um, (laughs) She also does brow cry and her journey has taken her um, around the world really in terms of the traditions that she studied. So all that stuff in her office is really this amalgamation of all of these different traditions. And I think she's, really tried to find the intersections of all these traditions and find, you know, the truth, the the true path through all of them um, as she's working with her clients and also working to understand her own experience that I write about in the piece. Yeah, because I mean, there is this kind of connectedness of all these different traditions, whether it's... Yes. Um, you know, it's just sort of like, uh, what is it, co-evolution, where they sort of came up, but they came up with the same solution on their own independently, and then you can kind yeah. of combine them. But then there's also like borrowing, and it's it's always interesting to hear like how those different items are kind of treated together, like how, if they're if the difference between them is respected, or if they just are consumed as part of like you know, welcome to the family, so to speak, of healing. Yeah. And I, I mean, she's so fascinating because, you know, when I walked into her office right outside her door is this beautiful Amish quilt square hung on the wall. Uh, and she tells me, oh, yeah, the Amish come to see me mostly so I can remove curses from them, just very matter of factly. <laughs> and, and she's like, and I also give massages, you know, and so... Um, it was just this wonderful mixture of really su- surprising traditions. You know, and speaking of incorporating new things, I mean, do you feel like modernity is creeping into Amish communities? And if so, through what avenues? I mean, are these people coming for curse removal and then they're like, mm, I'm going to watch some TV? Like, what's the <laughs> what's going on? Well, I'm definitely not an authority on contemporary Amish culture by any means. Uh, But I would say that, yeah, I mean, as I said before, there's a lot of, um, you know, there's a whole spectrum of Amish community. And for instance, the the Amish in Holmes County are, are pretty modern, you know, they have businesses, they run businesses, maybe they have computers at their businesses. Maybe they have generators at their homes. Uh, so so they, they have come into the modern world. Um, and, 
yeah, I, I can't speak to other to other Amish communities, but there, but there's definitely an evolution um, that has taken place in some. And I mean, do you feel like there's something that is lost when that modernity creeps in? Or I mean, do you feel like it kind of mirrors your own movement away from these traditions? I guess for me, I can kind of speak to my own experience of moving away from home and from the community and how there is this increased sense of freedom, of self-actualization. You're kind of coming into the American story of the individual and uh, the individual's, you know, journey toward, I don't know, becoming themselves or something, which is nice. But I think what is lost is a sense of a continuous story, right, of being part of this tradition that goes back generations and goes back to Europe of of having a community. Uh, I think so many people, whether Mennonite or Amish or not, are feeling these days the lack of community. And that is the really beautiful thing about Mennonite and Amish culture is that you have this group of people who are your people and you have a place where you feel essentially at home. And so the question I really faced in adulthood, because I'm not part of that community anymore, I've moved away from Ohio, is how do I build community in secular contemporary society what are the what are the ways we're building communities and I think it's we're we're really in a transitional phase right where people aren't going to church as, as much um maybe maybe the idea of family and extended family is sort of broken down and I think there are a lot of people who are longing for a way to feel at home in the world where they are. And, and um, we're looking for ways to, to enter into community. Absolutely. Um, and there doesn't seem to be, <laughs> if I may insert my uh, asshole leftist opinion here real quick, I think <laughs> it's obvious that there's a clear benefit to making that path to community as difficult as possible. There's a clear <laughs> reward to making it like yeah, just well now everyone has to buy their own everything you know yeah yeah that's true that's true but you know speaking of community one of the really incredible things uh that you know all these practices are you know are shared through the spell book but also like teacher to student for mm. generations and generations and there's this really beautiful um description of someone performing the healing and then seeing their teacher performing the healing and seeing the person who taught them the healing and going back and back and back generations. Like this is this real connection to history and um, this, you know, this oral tradition. So on this trip, did you feel like a student of these practices? Well, that, that connection 
is actually where the title comes from in the glimmer. Patrick described this sort of unbroken lineage as, as a sort of, he's telling a story about someone else talking about their teacher and the teacher before him and how it's sort of a glimmer, uh, which I thought was really beautiful. Um, I didn't really feel like a student while I was on the trip, but but recently I have thought, huh, should I uh, ask Patrick or someone to teach me these prayers? And do I want to be a, a Braukrai practitioner? And that's the sort of a curious, a curious idea. Um, I, I don't know what's going to happen, but, but I do think, you know, this piece, writing this piece was a first step to becoming a sort of student uh, of these traditions. Absolutely. And yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, cause no, you've exposed, you've exposed this beautiful tradition to uh, some people who like to read Harper. <laughs> <laughs> beautiful thing it's just it's not a small thing it's a beautiful thing but I mean do you like what you know what in your encounters or what you learned while you were out there did you find that you know kind of draws you uh toward going deeper into it is it just that feeling of curiosity and searching or is it there was some deeper connection I think there's a feeling that I am really interested in the mysterious parts of life. And of course, I think that's a huge part of why I'm a writer is because I'm interested in mystery. I'm interested in the, in the parts of the human experience that perhaps aren't, um, aren't as seeable, aren't, aren't as available. Um, yeah. So I now forget the question, but that's my answer. <laughs> <laughs> Although, I mean, I think also as a, a secular person, I am also deeply curious in the mystical. I think it's only if you are an atheist or agnostic or what have you, you know, like sort of not in for traditional church or whatever, that there that it doesn't it doesn't mean you're still not still curious about the mystical parts of life, the inexplicable parts of life. And so there are different, you know, ways to pursue that or be curious about it or long to know more about it. Um, I, absolutely. And my, my most recent theory is that writers are a sort of secular clergy and that we are involved in this practice and we return to it daily or weekly where we're investigating and thinking about and writing about uh, the mystery and, and trying to tell stories, trying to come up with new parables, sort of explain, um, explain our cosmology and explain what we're all doing. Uh, yeah. Yeah. No, I, I think that's very true. Um, and I mean, just like writing, the the you know powwow brahrai um you know gender isn't an identity marker right so there are male witches um 
And so like, all right, so here's a way in which, hey, maybe the um the Amish, Pennsylvania Dutch, the Mennonites are actually kind of progressive. So um how did <laughs> Well, yeah, it was I mean that I really loved, uh, because you know, Amish culture does tend to, to be quite patriarchal. And the fact that there was this egalitarian lineage, right, where the woman had to teach it to the man and the man teaches it to a woman, uh, there was kind of this equalizing effect within the tradition, uh, yeah. which felt very progressive and modern um, based on, you know, what it came out of. Yeah, I mean, it is it is one of those ways where it doesn't, I don't know, our traditional ways of thinking of the conservative liberal binary is not, you know, maybe it's not as it's it's hard and fast as we think. But you know, you touch very lightly on this piece um, on the conservatism of these communities. Uh, but you know, the, there's one healer who says that you sh- you know she likes Donald Trump because he's suspicious of the medical establishment. Which is perhaps unsurprising if you are a traditional healer and you you don't like Western traditional medicine. Um, but I mean, there is, there has been this weird sort of like horseshoe connection between big city liberals <laughs> who, who are into mysticism, who are burning sage in their apartment, they're doing whatever... Uh, when if Paltrow is telling them to do, they're kind of, they're a little mystical, and then there are these <laughs> people in the country who are doing the same thing. So there could be somebody in, you know, Ohio who is anti-vax for the same reasons that someone like big city liberal is anti-vax. So I mean, what do you make of that um, that weird sort of connection between people who are whose values are supposedly so different? Yeah, it is really peculiar, isn't it? I don't I don't quite know what to make of it, but I think what it's saying to a certain extent is that both of these extremes are are trying are searching for the same thing. Maybe their fears are also similar. Uh I don't know. Maybe maybe we're just all circling toward the same conclusions uh but it it was really surprising to encounter rachel smoker in deep in pennsylvania amish country wearing the most conservative amish clothes who was absolutely a savvy businesswoman running her cash only business uh and thriving you know she was she was just the embodiment of all of these sort of contradictions of 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 both the traditional and the modern merging and coming together in this really peculiar way um yeah, I don't know. I mean, we're, we're living in strange times, and I'm I'm just very very curious and and along for the ride, and here to write about it. Yeah, just keep the just put your hundreds in the Bible. No one will look that. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, but you know, 
you, you know, a lot of this piece is dealing with, you know, your relationship with your father. And, you know, there are certainly, I think, people who have very good relationships and very bad relationships with their parents or just sort of in the middle relationships with their parents will like recognize and connect with these moments. But um, at one point in the piece, you write that both you and your father exist in two worlds, the more conservative world of your upbringings. And then this kind of this move towards freedom that you individually sought for yourselves, you know, and then, you know, you also write that toggling between these worlds has made you an excellent performer and noticer of others' needs. You know, I, you, I, you write, quote, I will only exist in so much as other people do. And do you think that toggling between these two worlds is partly what made you a fiction writer, a sort of literary spellcaster, part of that secular clergy you were talking about? <laughs> Absolutely. Um in order to discern the rules of whatever society you're moving into, whether it's going from the dead end of a dirt road to the campus of Georgetown in DC, or going from that to the sort of new age desert land of Prescott, Arizona, I was always in this process of studying the world around me in order to learn the norms and learn how to inhabit that world. And I think because of my close attention and, and my desire to sort of know the rules of wherever I was, it made me a very um, close observer, you know, and, and it was, it was sort of what I, I had to do it to survive too and to thrive and to adapt. And obviously, close observation goes hand in hand with writing and um, also sort of walking into these new worlds and questioning the way that they operate um, also led me to being a writer. There were, there were just so many things that were puzzling, contradictory, and also, you know, coming of age is always Hard. And it was it was just really baffling to me to to kind of reconcile the world I came from with the world I was entering into. It it and and you know I think about my dad too, and he made an even huger transition from growing up on an Amish farm, and now he's 84 and he's reading articles on his computer. I mean, it's <laughs> a huge gap like a huge distance that he's traveled and I think he's been trying to reconcile that too and 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 to feel at home how do you feel at home when there are just these huge expanses inside of you and where is your home um and I think we share a lot of the same questions uh for that reason it was very cute when you guys were just listening to philosophy podcasts in the car. I love it. <laughs> my dad always had, you know, he and my mom just came to visit and he brought, he printed out this sheet that was all about someone, I think it was from a sub stack, he said, and it was 
someone writing about, you know, if you achieve enlightenment, is it your responsibility to share it with other people or, you know, do you have any sort of responsibility? He wanted to talk about that and he wanted to tell me about the French philosopher he had just been reading. And, you know, he always has these new ideas and things he's bringing me and um, he, he has so much to think about. And so I just, I really thank him for, for giving me that way of approaching the world and, and that sensibility and that curiosity. And I hope I'm not curious when I'm 84. Yeah, no, it'll keep you as youthful as someone who's constantly, uh, we've got the brown bottle with them. But thank you so much. <laughs> this is really lovely. Thank you. You've been listening to the Harper's Magazine podcast. The music is Cut and Shoot by Febrifuge. Harper's Magazine is the oldest general interest monthly in America, exploring the issues that drive our national conversation through long-form narrative journalism and essays. To get 12 issues for $21.97, visit harpers.org save.